Welcome to the She Recovers podcast. I'm Taryn Strong, co-founder with my mother, Dawn Nickel, of the grassroots movement and nonprofit public charity, She Recovers Foundation. She Recovers believes we are all recovering from something. And here on the podcast, we examine the healing power of connection and intentional living, as well as what happens in our lives when we put down our past stories and pick up our soul's true purpose. If you are seeking accessible and individualized online therapy, I invite you to explore the extensive network of licensed and accredited therapists at BetterHelp. That's Better H-E-L-P, who can help you with a range of issues, including substance use, depression, anxiety, relationships, trauma, grief, and more. BetterHelp will be making a $30,000 donation to She Recovers in support of our mission, and they are also offering all of our listeners a 35% discount for the first month of online therapy services from now until December 31st, 2022. I encourage you to say yes to receiving the relentless care and support you deserve by registering today at www.betterhelp.com forward slash SRF. That's www.betterhelp.com forward slash SRF. I hope you find connection, support, and empowerment in this week's episode, and it's an absolute honor to share it with you. Hey everyone, it's your host, Kelly Fitzgerald Hunko, and I'm so excited today to be joined by our guest, Jen Butler, who is also a She Recovers coach. Jen spent a decade as a stay-at-home mom before becoming a certified professional life and recovery coach and a She Recovers coach. To cope with the roller coaster of motherhood and enabled by wine mom culture, Jen was stuck in the fog of gray area drinking until 2018. As a coach, she now provides connection and accountability, the very keys that helped her start her own journey to alcohol freedom. To gray area and heavy drinkers who struggle with anxiety, perfectionism, and overwhelm. Jen empowers her clients to create change, nix negative self-talk, rediscover self-trust, and live with authentic purpose. A graduate of Brown University and the University of Cambridge in the UK, Jen lives in Chappaqua, New York with her husband, two children, and three dogs. I absolutely love this conversation as a new mom. It was great hearing from Jen and what she believes to be gray area drinking and how mommy wine culture can affect us all. We covered the topic of labels, amongst many other things. I can't wait for you to listen. Hello, and welcome to the She Recovers podcast. I'm so excited to have Jen Butler with us today. Hi, Jen. Welcome. Hi, Kelly. I'm so excited to be here. Thanks so much for having me. I'm so excited you're here. So let's jump right in. Tell us a little bit first about yourself. Who are you and what do you do? Excellent. So my name is Jen Butler. I have been a She Recovers coach since last spring, and I started my coaching business, Joy Enduring, which is a life and recovery coaching business almost about a year ago. It'll be a year in October. I can't believe it. The time has really flown, and I'm just loving doing this coaching work. Um, Prior to becoming a coach, I was a stay-at-home mom for about 10 years, and I, during that time, you know, I 
volunteered and kind of tried to keep the professional side of my brain alive and functioning as I, you know, was in the throes of motherhood. And now I'm just trying to build this this coaching career. And prior to having kids, I originally come from the nonprofit fundraising world. So I did a lot of nonprofit work um, at museums and private schools and for cancer organizations. And so that's my professional background. I have two kids. They are 10 and 8. So my, my daughter is going into middle school school in about a month and I can't believe it. And I also have three dogs, which has been quite a handful. We got a puppy in the spring. So our our bandwidth has been tested this spring. (laughs) And uh, our family lives outside of New York City in Westchester County, New York. Wonderful. Sounds wonderful. Three dogs. Oh my goodness. <laughs> it's It's been crazy. In fact, it'll be a miracle if we make it through this without barking in the background. <laughs> yes. And that's totally fine. We welcome barking or meowing in the background of, of any of our podcasts. So that's wonderful. Um, awesome. Well, I'm so glad you're here and love to learn a little bit about you. Can't believe yeah. you started your business over a year ago or just about I know. a year ago. I know. Amazing. Yep. Awesome. So you describe yourself as having four years of freedom from gray area drinking. Mm -hmm. Can you talk a little bit about what this means, how you define gray area drinking specifically, and how you achieved freedom? Absolutely. So I refer to myself as a former gray area drinking wine mom. I think that is (laughs) that really captures um, my relationship with alcohol. Um, It wasn't always that way, of course. You know, I started drinking. you know, really at the tail end of my senior year in high school, I was a very good kid, which we can get into very much a perfectionist, um, you know, good kid. And, um, but I started to kind of rebel against that a little bit at the end of high school and, you know, did the typical college, um, you know, heavy drinking, kind of binge drinking, which, you know, was quote normal. I'm doing air quotes because that's what everybody seemed to be doing. So that's what I did. Um, and then, you know, I actually drank less in my 20s. And and now that I look back on it, it's because that was a really fulfilling time in my life. I had jobs that I loved. I had a social life that brought me a lot of joy and fulfillment. I had just really fulfilling relationships in my life. When I first met my now husband, um, we actually didn't have any alcohol on our first date. And I drank very little when I was with him. I, you know, I was just very happy and content. That all changed when I became a mom, you know, and having my daughter was, of course, one of the most joyful and incredible life-changing events that I have ever experienced. But motherhood's really, really hard. It is isolating, it is exhausting. And because of mommy wine culture, which we can get into, you know, I I felt like that was my way out. That was my my coping mechanism that I had. It was my treat for myself. And so I really fell into that at that time. And I was I fell into the gray area for about 10 years. And the way that I define gray area drinking is Basically, I follow Jolene Park. I think she's incredible. She's done wonderful, wonderful work with gray area drinking. And she's the one that brought the term to to my mind. I had never heard it before until I started listening to her old podcast called Edit. And that was a real light bulb moment for me when she talked about how alcohol, if you think of alcohol use as a spectrum, you know, there's this gray area in the middle where you could stop if you had to, you know, so I didn't drink while I was pregnant, you know, or if I was on a medication or something, I could stop, but I didn't want to. And once I started drinking, it was very hard for me to stop. So it's it's this murky territory between 
every now and again drinking and super heavy drinking. And that is definitely where I got stuck. I started taking breaks from alcohol in January 2018. I did dry January. And that was an incredible experience for me. I mean, I I experienced the pink cloud of early sobriety where I sort of felt my world just like exploded in technicolor. And I know a lot of people don't experience the pink cloud. And I also just want to say, if you've taken a break from drinking and you haven't experienced the pink cloud, there is nothing wrong with you. It's just, yes. <laughs> you know, we're all on a different journey, right? Each path is different. So many people I know don't experience that and that's totally normal. But I did. But, you know, it wasn't enough for me. I went back to drinking after that, took another break, went back to trying to moderate my drinking. And I just found each time I went back, it was less and less enjoyable for me because I had learned about the impact of alcohol on my body and my brain. I had experienced how great I felt without it. So I kept getting back into the habit, but I found that it really was just out of habit. It wasn't because I wanted to be doing it um, or that I got any joy from doing it. So in at the end of June 2018, I decided to commit to a year off from drinking. And I called it my one-year alcohol-free. And I posted on social media every day to hold myself accountable. And that was my last day one. So July 5th, 2018 was my last day one. I never went back to drinking after that year. But I'll tell you, Kelly, it took like probably 11 months of that year for me to really accept that I wanted to be a non-drinker. It took that long, you know? It was not immediate. I didn't go into the year thinking, this is it. I'm going to quit forever. Or I'm going And I still don't think about forever. I don't put that pressure on myself, which I think is important. That's so important. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, but it took me 11 months. I got to June 2019 and finally I, I was kind of like, oh, look at me. I'm out in the world and I sort of feel like I'm a non-drinker now. And that's sort of where I've been since then. And can you pinpoint what that key was? Like at the end of like the 11 months getting to 12 months, a whole year, of where you were like, okay, I think I don't need to keep going back to drinking. Mm-hmm. Um, this is it. Or this is it for now, I guess, because you just said you right. don't yeah. think about forever still, which is wonderful. Yep. A lot of people don't, which is great. Yep. I think what it was, was, you know, I had made it through almost a year's worth of milestones without alcohol. So all the holidays, my birthday, my kids' birthdays, because that used to be an excuse to drink, you know, like yeah. I made it through all of those things. And Towards the end, I think towards the end of any booze break that you take, you start to think about what's next. And so it was in June that I was thinking, I started to think, well, what's next after this? And I realized, well, I think this is just it. I don't think there's any next. I think it's just, I don't want to go back. Um, So it was really getting to that point where I would have been thinking, you know, am I going to try to moderate? Am I going to, what am I going to do? Where I thought, oh, well, I don't really need to think about that because this is just where I want to be. And that was a wonderful, wonderful feeling. That's so powerful. And I really think it's a testament to going through everything in a whole calendar year of holidays and birthdays and social events and just life and whatever happens in that year and making it through without drinking. We really prove to ourselves that we don't need it. Exactly. And I think uh, that's really powerful for people who may have also go back to drinking sometimes or frequently Mm -hmm. or have had several day ones Mm -hmm. that maybe they don't make it through all the different things that we can experience and really prove to themselves that they can do it and that they are more joyful without it. Exactly. 
Exactly. You know, I feel like I sounded like a broken record on social media because anytime I made it past a milestone, whether it was a holiday or our first um, our first vacation where I didn't drink, and I really did sound like a broken record because the the tag the you know bottom line was it was better. You know, Christmas was better. Thanksgiving was better. My birthday was better. Going on vacation with my family was better. And you rack up enough of those, you know. Yep. Yeah, it's so great that you posted about it every day on social media. I'll have to go mm-hmm. read those posts because I think it's such a powerful type of like diary to have. Yes. And hopefully yes. like five years from now, you'll re- go back and you can always go back and read it. And exactly. And can benefit from reading it if they're wondering what it's like during that first year and what yep. you're feeling and thinking all the time. And I'm sure there was days that it's not so easy. And, and Oh, so absolutely. There were a lot, there's a lot of white knuckling. <laughs> Right. Yeah. <laughs> For so, sure. I mean, Especially during the first couple of breaks that I took. Absolutely. Yeah, exactly. It's very up and down. Yes. Um, so we don't want people to think it's like super easy or anything like that. So that is like a perfect type of diary to keep exactly. all the feelings and things you experience really at the forefront. So that's yep. so great. Accountability is everything, you know, and I've kept that same account is now my coaching account. So I started the account. It was called Maintaining Mama because I kept it anonymous at first. And now it's Jen Butler Coach, which is my current account that I use for all my coaching. And I tell my clients and and people who DM me, I say, you know, if you want to know my story, just scroll to the bottom. It's all there. Um, and it's it's a great reminder for me, as you just said. You know, sometimes I go down there and just look at it and and think like, okay, this is this is where I was. And it puts me right back into that mindset so that I never forget how hard it was, you know, but how absolutely worth it all of that work was. Right. And then you can always look at how far you've come to yeah. what a different person you are now. And now you yep. help people yep. to achieve the same type of freedom, which is amazing. Absolutely. Awesome. Well, you mentioned mommy wine culture. So let's dive into oh, that. Yeah. <laughs> um, you described yourself as a former wine mom. So let's speak about mommy wine culture. What mm-hmm. do you think about it? Why is it so insidious? Mm-hmm. And how does it affect women and moms? Mm-hmm. Insidious really is the word, isn't it? I mean, it is everywhere. It's everywhere. You go into Target, you see the, you know, it's wine o'clock on the t-shirts in the mom clothing section. Oh God. (laughs) You know, and I had those t-shirts. I had the t-shirts. I had the tea towels. I had the little plaques that I would hang on my wall. I had socks, socks Mm -hmm. that say, um, my favorite salad is wine. And I thought they were hilarious. I thought they were absolutely hilarious. And, you know, so it is, it's, everywhere, you know, from from those the stores to celebrities who are on Instagram and I will not name names who are who joke about using wine to deal with their kids. You know, they actually use their platforms to make a joke about needing wine to parent. You know, and it's no wonder because as I said, you know, motherhood is wonderful and beautiful and all those things, but it is also so isolating especially in those early days where it is like you and a baby and you're home and you're like, you know, just doing everything to keep this child alive (laughs) and, and building your day around their needs. It is exhausting. You are not getting a full night of sleep and sleep is everything. As I have recently rediscovered with this new puppy coming into our lives, (laughs) 
Yes. <laughs> Sleep yeah. is the key, you know? And I think people don't talk enough about how difficult motherhood is, especially mm-hmm. in the beginning, especially when it's your first child. I mean, my first child is 18 months, so I literally oh. just went through this. Oh my gosh, um, you were right in it. Oh. Yeah, and I'm expecting my second baby <laughs> oh is due no- November 3rd. Yes. Oh, so congratulations. going to have two soon, so I'm just yep. anticipating that. But, but I don't think I really got the real gist of everything until I really went through it myself. Exactly. And I knew I heard, okay, it's hard. Yeah. 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 Yep. I tried to yep. read all the books yep. and nothing prepared me for what it's actually like That's when you're so in true. it, when so you're true. in it and all you're doing is changing diapers, feeding them, mm-hmm. trying to get them to sleep day after day after day after day. Um, yep. So yeah, I think it's really important that we are more real about that, that Absolutely. it's really effing hard. It doesn't mean you <laughs> and, don't love your kid. Right, but it's exactly. It's okay to admit that you are exhausted and sometimes you don't like your kid. You always love your right. kid, but there may be times when you really oh, don't like them. Yes. <laughs> yeah, there are days right now where I can't wait to send him to daycare. Yeah. I love yeah. it. I love Bye. it. <laughs> <laughs> I need a break. Mama needs a break sometimes, which is like normal. Yep. Everybody feels like that and everyone should feel like that given yep. the circumstances. Exactly. But yeah, exactly. somehow this wine culture, this mommy wine culture, mommy juice, as we see it referred to, popped up as some sort of solution um, that is just obviously not a good solution and not a good consequence of this. Exactly. So go on. Exactly. What, no, you know, you I think it's I think it? it's so important for people to for women to understand what mommy wine culture is. It is a marketing ploy by big alcohol. That is what it is. It's not real. Wine is not self-care. It is an easy button that has been presented to us on, you know, a silver platter by big alcohol, you know, and Mm -hmm. it's just, it's just gross when you really realize that's what it is, you know, and it's okay to be angry about that. And it's okay to, to be frustrated. I was so frustrated when I realized that I got duped. You know, I thought to myself, right. I have an intelligent person. How, you know, how did I fall for this? But you know what? It's it's how we've all been programmed, you know, not, I shouldn't say we all, how many of us have been programmed in our lives to see alcohol as a rite of passage, to see it as a treat, you know, depending on how you grew up with the adults in your life, how they drank. And so it makes sense that that coupled with the marketing from big alcohol and how this is being pushed to moms. You know, I think there's a wine called like mommy's timeout, which is just, ugh. and so it's no wonder that we use it because it is an easy button, right? It is right. the way to, to numb out when you need that, that moment where you are feeling like the chaos in your life is overwhelming. And it's just so easy to pour that glass of wine and to numb out and to escape all of that just for a moment. Yeah. And it's big alcohol. I mean, in one way, I think of them as smart for using this marketing tactics because it's working. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But at the absolutely. same time, it's it's so criminal, honestly, yeah. to prey on women who are so vulnerable in those early days of motherhood or at any point yes. in motherhood. Yes. We all go through different phases and times and mm-hmm. they know that it's hard. So they're preying on that fact yep. and um, taking advantage of people who are vulnerable so and- true you know, at their wits end or what have you, or maybe have postpartum depression and anxiety or other mental health issues coupled with the availability of wine and alcohol. And they use that to get in and convince us that we need that stuff to deal with parenting. And it's, 
really frustrating and sad. Yep. I mean, our bodies, you know, when when you have a child, you know, your body goes through trauma. Your mm-hmm. your body changes forever. Your brain is wackadoodle with hormones, you know, going <laughs> yes. crazy. And so, you know, and and yes, and so many moms, and I think more moms than realize it, have some level of, of postpartum depression or anxiety. And you're right. Great. It's it's just they are preying on all of that. We you you have a child and there's no way you're not a hot mess to some degree. And so they are coming in and and swooping in. And offering wine as, you know, a a, a balm, you know, to soothe the, the cracks of motherhood. And it is not a balm. It is a grenade. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it, it can just, make, it our, make the apart. situations much worse in many yep. cases, especially if you have um, depression and anxiety. Exactly. Coupled with alcohol could make things much worse um, or prolong those mental health issues. Exactly. And I always find it interesting that there's no like daddy juice. There's no like daddy <laughs> juice marketing. That's so true. Um, I've never thought about that. That's like, so true. Yeah. And it's like, that's just says so much, I think, mm-hmm. in our society mm-hmm. of that they really are targeting moms yeah. and for this particular reason because the they vulnerable, know it's hard vulnerable. and traumatic yeah. and yep. so much going on and that we are very desperate to feel better at times yep. and yeah it's not right you know and one thing that I that I work with um, my client and I have clients who are at all stages of motherhood and you know it's interesting because we can talk a lot about early motherhood but really these themes of isolation and you know a lack of self-care and things like that, they continue, you know, they continue right. on because it's every age and stage presents its challenges. So, mm-hmm. you know, I, I work a lot with my clients on helping them realize often if they if they are feeling the need to use wine as that escape hatch, it's because they're missing connection in their lives and they're not taking the time for self-care and that it's okay to do those things and it doesn't have to be a, a grand effort, you know, it can be taking a shower every day, right? It can be, you know, today I'm going to call a friend and talk to someone on the phone, you know, in real time, not just like send a text or, or a voice, a voice message or whatever. Right. And these tiny goals, they add up. Okay. And ultimately, you know, it's about doing enough of those actions and achieving enough of those small goals so that the need to take the edge off and to hit that wine easy button will lessens over time, you know, and that's the ultimate goal to build in all of these other things that fulfill you so that there's no more room for wine. Right. Exactly. I know for me personally, just at this moment, I've been trying to really meditate on a regular basis. Mm -hmm. Like I have in the past before kids. Um, but obviously it gets more difficult to find those few minutes where you can sit down and be quiet that's and a, a common thing in motherhood is overstimulation, um, overwhelm with noises and oh, yes. <laughs> touched, which I feel myself going through a lot right now, mm-hmm. probably worse because I'm pregnant. But mm-hmm. And I used to think, oh, well, I have to wake up and like not touch my phone or look at the internet or anything and then do my little meditation in like this dark room. Well, it's not never going to look perfect like that. So yeah. I would say the last week I meditated five times out of seven days. I'm like, that's pretty good. Oh, that's some days awesome. it's in the morning, some days it's in the evening, some days it's at lunchtime. Yep. It's in between meetings or whatever. It's where I can fit it in. Yep. And it still makes me feel good. It's not perfect, but it's just these other things that we build up where gives us a little bit of breathing room and exactly. time to expand and be like, okay, 
I'm okay. I can keep going. I can go on. Exactly. Time to reestablish boundaries, right? I mean, that's the other thing with motherhood. It's like, you know, that baby arrives and your boundaries disappear. Mm -hmm. And I love what you said about touch because I think that's something that um, a lot of moms may be afraid to to say or to admit. And I deal with that still with my kids. They're 10 and 8 and there are still times where I'm like, nobody touch me. Just don't touch me. I love you so much, but I need you to not be touching my body right now. Right. So, you know, and that's really important because you keep those boundaries and you keep in touch with with yourself. When you lose your boundaries, you lose yourself. And again, that's that's when it's too easy to hit those those easy buttons and, you know, and to do things to, you know, take the edge off. And really, it's about keeping our edges on. You know, Brene Brown says that. And I love how she says that, that, you know, we have to keep our edges on so that we know where we end and others begin. Right. And especially with being a mom, I feel like that's an identity shift. Yes. um, Or an extra identity that we bring on after we have kids. And so it's very difficult to to pinpoint, okay, what is my identity as a mom, as a person, as an employee, whatever all my other roles are in my life. And I find myself still like navigating, which I'm sure I will for the rest of my life now. But one thing I said before I had kids is like, I don't want my whole identity to be a mom. I want to still have my job. I want to like still read and write for fun and Mm -hmm. have some time to myself. And it's important to remind moms that they can have all that stuff. Yes. And um, not feel like their whole life is taken over by the kids and everything that has to do with the kids, um, which can lead us to coping mechanisms like drinking. Like if we feel like we don't have any time for ourselves or we can't have any hobbies or what have you for ourselves, I really believe it leads to us acting out in a way like drinking or other types of behaviors that might not benefit us. It's just too much, you know? And I say that to my kids sometimes now that they're older and and I can say things like this to them. You can't so much do that with an 18 month old, but, (laughs) but you know, now that they're older, I'll say to them, you know, listen, I need to take, like my daughter has been asking lately a lot to read in bed with me at night. And I, sometimes I let her, but sometimes if I've kind of had it and I'm ready to clock out, I will say to her, I need to take this time for me. You know, I love you, but I will be a better mom if I can have this reading time to myself tonight. Yeah. You may not perfect. understand it, but but just trust me. Yeah, <laughs> I know I what I'm talking about. I've hit my earlier. limit, you know, and and she'll kind of sulk off to her room, but but I know she heard me, you know, and it was good for me to say that because again, it's keeping keeping boundaries. Right. And the earlier I think we start to explain that to them the more normal it becomes and exactly. they realize it's not anything personal. It's yeah. just, yeah. Know, and then they we all have our own themselves, right? Spaces. Right. Exactly. Yep. yep. So hopefully they exactly. won't have to, you know, when my daughter becomes a mom, if she chooses to become a mom, she won't let her boundaries dissolve. You know, exactly. she it's a great will, example. Yeah. Right. Yeah. She will remember, Oh, you know, I gotta, I gotta look out for me too. And that's okay. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Awesome. So as a She Recovers coach, you know that we're all recovering from something, as we say here, and we have tons of women who are in recovery in our community from all different things. So you mentioned in your work that you have dealt with perfectionism. Can you talk about how how you've worked on that (laughs) or how it's a part of your recovery and your life now? Yes. Yeah, I I would love to talk about that. You know, I, um, oh man, for most of my life, 
I, I always knew I was a perfectionist. And for most of my life, I saw that as a good thing because I got good grades. I, you know, went to an Ivy League university. I did all the right things and I did all the good things. Um, that's sort of how I saw myself. Now, having done this work and, and having really embraced the idea of recovery and realized, oh, perfectionism is something I've really got to work on and I need to recover from this because actually it's not serving me. It is keeping me in my comfort zone. It is keeping me in a box. And that's really where I was. You know, if I tried something, you know, like a new sport or, or even a, a, you know, physics, studying physics in high school, and I wasn't immediately good at it, I basically gave up. You know, I, I made it to college and um, I didn't need to do a core curriculum so I could sort of take any classes I want, wanted to. And I didn't take a single math class because I thought, well, I'm not good at math. I wouldn't do that either. That's so funny. Sorry <laughs> I mean, to just interject. I barely regret I always, that. Actually, yeah. now that I say it out loud. <laughs> math was always my nemesis. Sorry to interject. But that. No, I no, I, I hear you. But I, but you know, it's like, I, I didn't take math because I thought I wouldn't do well. You know, um, there, and there are other classes that I wish I'd taken because I, I wish that I had just tried, but I was afraid to try things because I wanted to stay good and stay in my comfort zone. Um, there's a, there's a really wonderful coaching exercise that I do sometimes with clients and that I did in my coaching training called the life metaphor, where you think about a metaphor for your life leading up to, you know, this time of, of deciding to commit to change, and then a metaphor for where you want your life to go. And the metaphor that I used was, or that I still think about all the time, is that my life leading up to, you know, when I when I started stopping drinking was a perfectly wrapped little gift box with like a perfectly tied bow on it, crisp corners, you know, that was my life. And my life since I stopped drinking and the way I want my life to be from now on is, you know, a box that's like exploded with confetti with, you know, shards of paper everywhere and confetti and glitter and all these good things coming out of it. And I I want to be out, you know, as myself authentically showing up in the world, unafraid to make mistakes, unafraid to take risks because I spent most of my life in the opposite position and it was exhausting. Perfectionism is exhausting. You know, holding yourself to an impossible standard is exhausting. And it took me, you know, really until I stopped drinking to realize that one of the reasons why I was drinking was to escape this perfectionism and to escape these ridiculous standards that I had set for myself to be the perfect mom, the perfect wife, the perfect human, you know, doing all this volunteer work and showing up, you know, doing all the right things all the time. And now since I have been in recovery from perfectionism and gray area drinking, you know, I'm realizing that all the good stuff is outside your comfort zone. That doesn't mean that, you know, snuggling with my puppy isn't great or, you know, snuggling with my kids and doing all that comfy stuff is not also great. But what I mean is, you know, being out in the world as the person, as exactly who I am, you know, I, I've grown out. You can't, I don't know if you can really see Kelly because it's my hair still wet from my shower that I treated myself <laughs> to before this podcast. But yes. I have grown out my natural hair. I have a lot of gray hair for a 41-year-old. 
but I've grown out my natural hair. That keeps me out of my comfort zone. You know, a few weeks ago, I got it cut into an undercut. So it's like buzzed all the way around. That keeps me out of my comfort zone because I don't think there are any other moms in my town with this haircut. Not drinking keeps me outside my comfort zone because I don't have that armor. Teaching kickboxing, which I also do, keeps me out of my comfort zone. I just, I, I try to do all these things to keep me challenged and uncomfortable. And it's so much more fun and liberating than trying to stay in that perfectionist bubble. You know, I feel so much more content than I ever felt trying to be perfect. And so I I feel like, you know, by committing to being in recovery from perfectionism, by committing to, I, I like to say, dismantling my inner perfectionist, I feel like I've actually been able to build my true self and grow into my true self. And there is no greater work than that. It's been so rewarding. Yes, that's such a beautiful change. Was there anything inside that your inner perfectionist that you had in there believed, like beliefs that you had to break down that you may have thought that being a perfectionist would lead to something like a perfect life or um, a more fulfilling dream or those mm-hmm. types of things that you had to break down on during your recovery as a perfectionist? Yeah. I mean, you know, one one moment in this work when I really got honest with myself um, was realizing that so I'm a child of divorce. My parents got divorced when I was four and I don't really remember it. So I always look back and what I always say to people is, you know, I'm the I'm the most well-adjusted child of divorced parents that I know, you know. When I started doing this work, I really took a more honest look at that and I thought to myself, actually, of course that was traumatic. I kind of let myself off the hook and realized like just because I don't remember every single day of when I was 4 years old, doesn't mean that it was not traumatic. And my mom has this picture that I drew and she saved it all these years. And she recently showed it to me. I drew a family portrait um, and I'm an only child as well. So it was just me and my parents and they got divorced when I was four. And I drew a family portrait around that time and I drew us all upside down. I mean, right? It's like, oh, clearly I knew that something was not right. And so I now realize that that experience, that trauma really fueled my perfectionism because I didn't want to rock the boat. You know, as my dad went on to marry my stepmom and my mom also had a a new partner um, that she, you know, stayed with a new long-term partner. I I didn't want to rock the boat. I didn't want my dad to get divorced again. I wanted my mom to be happy. It was just me. I didn't have any siblings. So I just wanted everyone to be happy and everything to be okay. And I think as I, you know, grew into into my early adulthood and into adulthood, you're right. Like I, I wanted to find, you know, a husband and have the perfect family and be the perfect mom so that it would all be fine. And I would never have to, I would never, you know, my children would never have to go through that level of trauma. And that is just pressure that, holy smokes, none of us deserve to put that much pressure on ourselves. Right. And it's interesting that kids that young can really take on that role that without... I mean, kids are so smart, but without really knowing the implications of what that means that you took that on and that, okay, if I behave perfect and I get good grades and I do everything I'm supposed to do, hopefully my parents won't go through that painful thing again. Yep. Yep. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, (laughs) 
<laughs> little, little deep work. <laughs> yeah, I mean, Nothing well, like a little deep work. Full reflection, and then it's honestly, yes. I, I'm sure many people don't get to really kind of pinpoint where their perfectionism came from yeah. or how it manifested. So, having that knowledge and being able to reflect and have that aid your recovery today is kind of yeah. a beautiful thing. That's that such know, a wonderful way to put it. Know. Yeah, I really appreciate you putting it that way. And, um, you know, I think it also just letting myself off the hook, you know, and just yes. saying to myself, you know, that was really hard. And it's okay that you reacted that way. It's understandable that you spent <laughs> the next 30 years trying to be perfect, you mm-hmm. know, and, and, now you don't want to live that way anymore. And that's, that's wonderful. So go for it. You know? Right, exactly. And we're, we were children, right? So we, yeah. it's not like we chose to like react that way yeah. on purpose. Yeah, it's just exactly. something that subconsciously happened given our circumstances and how yep. we grew up and that's yep. it. And that's all we can do is accept and, and move on and, and change now and use that information for, to better our lives today. So that's so great. true. So true. I love how you put that. Yeah. Yes. Awesome. Um, is there anything else that you would consider yourself in recovery from besides perfectionism and alcohol? Yeah, so definitely perfectionism, gray area drinking. And then um, I think one thing that kind of goes hand in hand with my perfectionism, but I look at it as a separate thing because it's something I'm also working on is people pleasing. Oh, yes. You know, it They really it really does go hand in hand with, with perfectionism. But I, I feel that, you know, the recovery work I've done I, I address it as its own thing because, um, man, it's just, it's an area where I've had to do a lot of work and I still find myself falling into that. You know, even when I'm planning my kickboxing classes, I think like, well, I know so-and-so, you know, did a heavy strength training yesterday, so I should probably take it a little easier on that. It's like, no, I'm just going to write the class I want to teach. It's okay. You know, it's okay right. if someone doesn't think it was the best workout or if someone, if it, if it targets a, an area that someone doesn't want to work on or like, it's okay. Let it be the class that I want to teach. Um, and gosh, in becoming a coach, I will also say that the people pleasing that has really come up as I have started this coaching career and working with clients, because I want all my clients to be the happiest and to have the best experience. And it's really hard for me to, not fall into the trap of just trying to make them happy, you know, to really ask the tough questions, the questions that will really make them work hard because that's where the value is in coaching. So, you know, I, that's something that I've really had to work on and it's been an incredible experience for me because when I ask those tough questions and I can see my client really doing the work to answer. And then the answer comes out of their mouth and it's like, you can see the weight lifted off their shoulders. And that is such an incredible experience. So I use, you know, I use that experience, those experiences as fuel to keep that work going in my own life. Yes. And that's, it's a hard thing to do as a coach um, because we often see people that might be in pain. Yes, absolutely. Um, I mean, that's generally why they're getting coaching. So it's hard to not make them want to feel better all the time or say the things that we know might perk them up um, instead of listening and asking the right questions and letting Mm -hmm. them come to the conclusions on their own. Mm -hmm. But yeah, people pleasing is a good one. I know a lot of people in our community will resonate with that. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So speaking of being a coach, 
what made you want to become a She Recovers coach and, and do this type of work out in the world? Yeah. So I, gosh, I love She Recovers. I love what the foundation stands for. I love that the foundation is is working to shatter the stigma associated with recovery because that very much exists. It existed for me. Um, not anymore, but it did. You know, I first thought, well, I, I'm not in recovery. That's that's for people who have a capital P problem. And no, you know, there's nothing wrong with saying I'm a recovered gray area drinker. I'm a recovering perfectionist. Why not? Because there's no shame in recovery because being in recovery means that you are owning your stuff. You know, you're owning the fact that you had a, a, a personal issue that you wanted to change and that you are committed to creating that change. And that's just a beautiful thing. So I love that. I love that She Recovers embraces women who are recovering from anything and everything. You know, I think that's also really important because it's too easy to fall into the trap of comparison. A lot of my clients yeah. do this with their drinking, especially they'll say, you know, well, like I don't have a serious problem or I don't, you know, and it's like, you know, I, I'm not as bad as that person or this person in my life or, you know, and none of that matters, you know, comparison, the the cliche is comparison is the thief of joy, right? But it it really truly is. And so for She Recovers to just I'm kind of I, I'm like embrace. I'm putting I'm putting my arms in the shape of like a hug because I feel like that's sort of what she recovers is. It's like everybody yes. come on in, you know. Yes. Everybody come on in. It doesn't matter if you have a lowercase p problem, a capital P problem. If you have one issue you're working on, if you have ten issues you're working on, um, I really love that about this organization. And I have found since being associated with she recovers and learning more about she recovers that I have really claimed my recovery more than I had before. And I've found that claiming your recovery, you know, it's, it's not embarrassing, it's empowering. And so I just, I love that this is what that's, this organization stands for. And I love that being a, by be, being a She Recovers coach, I am contributing to the shattering of the stigma of recovery. Yeah, I love that. I think you summarized it perfectly. I think when I think about all the different options available out there for mm -hmm. connection and community, she recovers, just provides something different, a big hug, like you said, yeah. a big yep. um, net for everyone yes. to land in. Um, and some people come in and they don't even know what they're in recovery from. Yet. Yeah, exactly. I didn't when because, I first started this work, right? Right. Yeah. They get here because they need something. They need support. They need connection. They need community. And then they find it by attending the gatherings or working with a She Recovers coach mm -hmm. or whatever it may be using our resources and they figure it out. And it's really beautiful to watch that happen. Um, or some people say they, they always say on the gatherings, I'm, I came in for alcohol, but um, today I'm recovering from PTSD or trauma yes. or other yeah. things that is yep. more at the forefront. And I think as we move on, like when I got sober uh, back in 2012, mm -hmm. but it's like, I, have all these other issues that I've been through since then, yep. anxiety, depression, yep. trauma, grief, um, is a very potent one yes. right now. So, so yeah. we'll experience more things as life goes on. Exactly. So it's, it's like, it's good to have a net and a community where you can find and talk about all those things, find other people who have been through similar things. Yep. Um, and that's a beautiful thing. And yep. I love that you can talk about anything and she exactly. recovers exactly. and find a coach who, um, 
maybe has been through similar things or yep. specializes in a certain type of thing. Absolutely. Um, in your case, gray area drinking, which is awesome. Yeah. And I think you're making a difference in, in lives, which is yep. really important and really fulfilling for you and Absolutely. obviously helping people um, that that they're navigating in their lives. Yep. So that's, you wonderful. know, and I love when clients come to me through She Recovers because I say to them like, oh, well, you're already, you know, five steps ahead. Like you found She Recovers, you know, you already know that there's a network of people out there who are just waiting to to welcome you. You know, you already know that there's no shame in recovery and that there are, one of the things I love about She Recovers is the idea of a patchwork of recovery. Yes. You know, that like everyone's recovery looks different. And so you already know that you are allowed and encouraged to patch your own recovery together, whatever is best for you, because you're the only one who knows what's best for you. Right, exactly. Yeah, I love that too. And it's a place where they realize and we realize that we might need to try different things yep. as life goes on or Absolutely. different parts of our recovery might require different types of resources or tools, or Absolutely. maybe you haven't done therapy before, but you will now, depending on what you're experiencing, those types of things. So yep. it's just a very welcoming place and the coaches make it what it is too with volunteering for the gatherings and then having clients of their own. So that's yep. awesome. Yep. What's your favorite part about being a coach and helping women? Oh, man. I feel like I I have two answers to this question. You know, if you'd asked me nine months ago what is my favorite part, I would have said um, when I can – when I witness like a light bulb moment with a client. And that still is true today, you know, that when I ask a certain question and and they dig and they come up with an answer and then they're like, oh, you know, that is, I mean, I'm getting goosebumps just talking about it. That is just such an incredible thing to be able to work with people to get there. And I, 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 I wouldn't say like to do that for people is great. No, because it's the client who's doing the work. You know, it's just the right question at the right time. It just, it feels like magic. It really does. But now that I've been coaching for almost a year, I can also say that having, being along for the ride with long-term clients is absolutely, I mean, there. There's nothing like it. The evolution that I have been privileged enough to witness in my long-term clients, I, I truly don't have words for it. You know, there are, there's, you know, one, one person in particular that I'm thinking of, you know, she, just the way she talks now and the way she, she talks about doing different things and, and modes of self-care. And like, she sounds like a totally different person and she's so much happier and more content and more confident. And just being able to kind of be her wing woman through that process has been just the best work of my life. That's wonderful. Yeah. It's like bearing witness to someone yes. changing their life. There's nothing yep. more powerful. I agree oh, with you. Incredible. I love that. Yep. I love seeing people change and they might not even notice it in the moment, but mm -hmm. you do and you get to be a witness to it. And I love just listening to people and having them trust me with telling, telling me stuff. Yes. Some of their most important um, things that they want to tell someone. Yes. Um, I think that's, there's nothing like that. Just being a witness and listening and providing insight when, when appropriate. Like so that's true. Just so awesome. true. Yep. Yep. Yes. Awesome. So we've already discussed a few She Recovers intentions and guiding principles, but I mm -hmm. wanted to ask you what your favorite one is. Mm -hmm. um, I love this question. I, I uh, 
because I still remember going onto the She Recovers website for the first time and reading all the principles. And each one I read, I was like, oh, yes. Oh, yes. Oh, I love that one. I love that one. You know, they're just I – lo- I truly love them all. Um, I did mention, like, I love the patchwork idea. Um, I love the idea of we're all recovering from something. I just think that that is so powerful. It's just, it's just a permission slip, you know, just like a green light to just – be it, be in it, you know, be in it, just do the work. Cause we're all, we're all in it. But you know, of course the, the, of all the principles, I think the one that resonates with me the most is that you don't have to hit rock bottom to pursue recovery. You know, I, I will never know how many drinks away from rock bottom I was. I know that alcohol always does its job. So if I hadn't committed to change, I would have hit rock bottom at some point. I am forever grateful and I'm grateful every day for the fact that I did not hit rock bottom because I have people in my life who did and it's really scary and horrible. Um, so I, I just love this idea that you don't have to go there to create, to decide you want to make a change, you know, especially with alcohol use, you know, mm-hmm. you can, you know, you can decide that alcohol is not serving you. If you, you can have one drink a week and decide that it's a problem. It doesn't, you know, you don't have to get to rock bottom. You don't have to have a capital P problem to decide you want to make a change. So that is definitely the principle that that stands out to me the most and something that I feel like I live every day. I love that you said alcohol always does its job. Yeah, that's so true. Yeah. Um, And yeah, I think it's really powerful. And it's a testament to the work that She Recovers is doing in the world. Yes. Of having that as one of their um, intentions and guiding principles because for so long, addiction and recovery was shaped as you have to hit rock bottom yes. in order to yep. get better and do yep. something else with your life. And we're literally saying, no, you don't yeah. have to do that. And yeah. you don't have to suffer so much and you don't have to lose everything or hurt yourself or somebody else in order to want to change and just exactly. have a better life. Exactly. So I mean, that idea, great. you know, that idea enabled my drinking for so many years. This idea of like, well, it's not like I have to go to rehab. I'm, you know, I'm fine. I'm nobody in my life would have said I have a had a problem. You know, nobody like even my husband was taken aback when I first told him I was going to do that first dry January. You know, he was like, "Well, you don't you don't have a drinking problem. You know, you're you're fine." And that's really hard. That's a hard moment. And I've had clients who've been through the same thing. Um, you know, so it's easy to use other people's you know, understanding of your relationship with alcohol to enable a dysfunctional relationship with alcohol because nobody's in, nobody else is in your head. So, you know, someone just sees you having a few glasses of wine on the outside. They don't know that on the inside, it's, it's this nonstop chatter about when did I start drinking? How, how fast have I been going? Did the kids see me have that second glass or should should I just like not the nonstop chatter that's so exhausting. And that's what I, one of the things I wanted to, to free myself from, it was just taking up so much time and space in my brain. And that's something that no one else could see. So, you know, no one would have said I was at rock bottom or that I had a problem, but I knew And, you know, that's when I decided to create change. And I am, as I said, I'm grateful every day that I didn't hit rock bottom. And I think it's really important to spread that message that nobody has to hit rock bottom in order to commit to change. Right. And I think rock bottom as a concept is kind of subjective. It's it's different for everybody in terms of what they want to even refer to as a rock bottom, right? I feel like in my situation, I had several different ones, Mm -hmm. rock bottoms, Mm -hmm. but... 
Um, I kept drinking after several of them. And even at the end when I did stop drinking, my husband said the same thing. He was like, well, I think you just need to like work on moderating and taking some breaks and like, you don't need to quit altogether. That's like very Oh, I heard that too. (laughs) Yeah. And some of my friends also like they wanted the best for me and they loved me and they support me, but they were like, you do really think that you need to quit? Like, I don't think so. I don't think so. Mm -hmm. That just tells Mm -hmm. me that the idea we have in our heads of people who should quit drinking versus shouldn't Mm -hmm. is too extreme and too murky. And that there should be tons of examples of all different people all across the spectrum, gray area and beyond who can have a better life without drinking. Absolutely. Absolutely. That's so true. And I think it's so important to understand when you hear those comments from people that, you know, I think two things, you know, number one, when when you say that you're going to change your relationship with alcohol, that you're committed to making this change, it, it forces people who are in your life to reflect on their relationship and that may make them very uncomfortable. So, you know, I think, and again, I've heard so many similar stories from clients and I had a very similar story myself. So I think it's important to to put it in context and realize that this is not a reflection of you. It's a reflection of what's going on in their lives and their relationship with alcohol. And then I think the second thing is that, and I know my husband and I dealt with this, is that, you know, committing to making a change like this is scary. It's scary for the person who's doing it, but it's also scary for the partner and for the best friend and, you know, for other other people who are close to you in your life because they don't know, no one knows, including you, how it's going to turn out. How you're gonna are you gonna change? Is it gonna change your personality? Is it gonna change? You know, nobody knows. Right. Um, and that can be a really scary thing. So again, you know, I think the more open we are about it and the more we just communicate, you know, the the better it will be. But it's scary for sure. Right. And I think we've made strides really um in this community, the sober slash alcohol free slash mm-hmm. recovery community. Um, over the years. And it's wonderful to see sober curious people and people just taking breaks and kind of dabbling. And I think it's wonderful because it really does change the stigma around being sober because before nine years ago, people would just automatically say, oh, you're an alcoholic or you must have been in prison or you must have had a DUI or something very bad in order to make that decision. I had people assume a lot of things about me because I stopped drinking. Oh yeah. And um, that's okay because I'm not trying to like prove anything, but Mm -hmm. at the same time, I'm like, actually that's not the case. (laughs) So so it's, yeah, it's interesting. I think we're doing good work and we're making a lot of progress and there's still a lot to go. Yeah. I hear you. I mean, there was a time when I, when I first started my journey, when I felt like I just wanted to walk around with like a a giant, like, you know, the scarlet letter, you know, I wanted to walk around with like a giant NA on my chest for like not an alcoholic, you know? But then I I was like, well, you know, I just tried to remind myself that people, People are gonna people are gonna write the stories that they're gonna write. And I'm not holding their pens, I'm only holding my own. And you know, right. so I'm just gonna be out here in the world doing what I need to do, sharing my story, and hopefully people will listen and understand where I'm coming from or they can ask me directly. But at the end of the day, I can't control the stories that they're gonna that they're gonna make. Right, exactly. And yeah, I mean I think, again, it's going to take time and um, those of us telling our stories uh, multiple times yep. <laughs> and more of us yep. um, for people to understand like, oh, like someone who's not drinking doesn't automatically mean this word alcoholic. Exactly. So yeah, exactly. But we're so doing true. it. We're yes, doing we are. <laughs> yes, we are. <laughs> Amazing. So what's one thing you can share with our community, anybody considering joining She Recovers, if they are new to recovery? Oh, man. You know, 
I there's so much that I that I would want to say, and really, I just would want to give that person a giant hug. But I think <laughs> in I, I really just have two words though, and it's what I decided is my mantra for 2022: stay brave. You know, if you think yeah. if if this or if you found this organization in a Google search or you heard by word of mouth or whatever, and it's it's you have that kind of gut feeling that you may have a place here, that these may be your people, stay brave, stay in it, go for it, you know, connect, get on a call, do you know, reach out to a coach, stay brave, stay out of your comfort zone, because that's where the change happens. I love that. Perfect ending. Stay brave, everybody. So <laughs> yes. thank you so much, Jen, for joining us today. Thank you, Kelly. I had awesome so much fun. I love talking to you. Appreciate it. Thank you. 